So tonight, um, I want to explore a topic that um, I often hear very sort of standardized responses to. So uh, the topic is ethical conduct. And you can check in your own mind what happened when I said that. Often there's a sense of heaviness or, you know, guilt or boring or I thought I escaped that when I left the Christian church or whatever it is. So the title of my talk is The Joy of Ethical Conduct. And um, I hope to use that framework. There's a lot of words um, that get thrown around related to this topic. So things like ethics, precepts, virtue, um, it can get entangled. I don't want to, I'm not going to try to separately define all of these different things because it tends to come with so much baggage in our mind. So I think in the course of this talk, you'll get to examine your own relationship to ethics, which is good, and also to things that might sound more appealing, like good conduct, non-harming, compassion. They're all the same, really. So don't get caught in the words. I want to offer some perspectives that I hope are helpful and also um, practical. So there are a number of different frames for discussing ethics, and the one that I'm going to choose is the frame of non-harming. So compassion, you could also say. So these are the motivation and the, and the view that we don't want to cause harm. We want to go through our life and walk through the world in a way that is kind, or at least not angry, not disruptive, not um, insensitive to all the beings that we are among. If these sound appealing, then this would be that you're striving for an ethical life. I suppose there are some kinds of disruption that might be appealing, <laughs> but ethics can include that too. Um, because the accepted norms of society are not always in line with ethics, you know, with what's actually ethical. And so to follow it, we may need to stand out or speak up or be different than those norms. This framework of non-harming can manifest in various ways. You know, how do you actually do that in your life? It's, it's a nice idea, but what does it look like when you actually do it? Um, some people undertake precepts, um, the standard five of not killing, not stealing, not lying, no sexual misconduct, and not using intoxicants. Those are actually offered here once a month at ISC, if you'd like to try what it's like to say those five things and commit to taking them. Um, you can commit to certain courses of action. Instead of committing to refraining, you can commit to doing certain things generosity, loving-kindness, some people like that. Um, 
should include also right view and non-judgment. There's a list actually in the suttas if you want to take it in the positive form instead of the negative. It can also be manifested through meditation or through a daily life mindfulness practice. In my experience, there is no better alert to or sensitizing agent to ethics than mindfulness. As soon as you start looking more carefully at what you're doing, you start noticing when you're not in alignment, which is another word for non-ethics, is out of alignment. You can feel it. <clears throat> so, I don't think this that ethics are the same as committing to precepts at all. I think anyone who's very ethical will act in line with that. But um, I don't see it as... Uh, moral strictures of various kinds that we take on their practices because it's better for you to behave in these ways <laughs> at the very basic level and then of course it extends out to all other beings but at the very basic level be kind to yourself at least from Christina Feldman Meditation is not ethically neutral, nor is it solely a path of inner transformation intent upon achieving exotic states of inner experience. It is directed towards not only the cultivation of calm and wisdom, but also compassion, sensitivity, forgiveness, love, and generosity. Meditation is a path not only of inner change, but a path that enables us to touch our relationships and the world around us, with compassion, care, and peace. So this is this frame of non-harming. And there are two aspects of it that I'd like to touch upon. One is with regard to ourselves and our own experience. How do we not harm ourselves? And then secondly, in our interconnected presence in the world, how do we move without causing harm? I think they're very related, of course, but it can help sometimes to conceptually to separate them. In addition to that, so one dimension I hinted at at the beginning that's not talked about much in relation to this topic is the inherent joy of living in a way that doesn't cause harm. So for each of these dimensions, I want to touch also on the joy that's related, ethics, compassion, and joy, and how they all intertwine so we start with our own experience you know, how is it that we can be with ourselves in a way that is not harming Buddhist teachings are very experiential um, the means of knowing actually in all Buddhist traditions is ultimately our own experience now we have the challenge that when we start we're not so connected to our own experience always, and we're also not very wise necessarily about interpreting our experience. So it's not really just a path where we, we get to totally decide everything about it. I mean, you can do it that way, but um, it takes longer. <laughs> so there's also generally the encouragement to talk with people who are wise, to have spiritual friends that kind of give you feedback and mirror so we're not really doing this all alone. But in the end, it is our own experience that we have to trust uh, more than that from somebody else. And we will find, if we examine our own experience, 
that there are certain types of action and speech and even thought that are associated with happiness. And there are other types of action, speech, and even thought that are associated with suffering or pain or discouragement or any of the other uh, negative mind states. And so a big part of the path is learning to discern in our own experience what is leading to what. Um, and then do and have the, then the uh, intention and the energy to do the things that are leading away from suffering and not do the things that are leading towards suffering. It sounds very simple, but it's, um, we know it's not so easy sometimes because we're entangled mostly with um, uh, pleasure. That's the problem. <laughs> so what we want is pleasure and not pain, what we, what we say, and that's sort of where our motivations go. But what's actually good for us in the long run is to go away from suffering, away from suffering and toward non-suffering. Now, there happens to be a pretty good overlap between pleasure and non-suffering, um, but it's not 100%. <laughs> As we know, there are things that are pleasurable that are actually leading us towards suffering. And similarly, there's a pretty good overlap between leading away from suffering, um, sorry, leading towards suffering and pain, but um, not completely. There are some things that are painful that are actually good for us. We also know that, right? So we have to have the ability to discern and then to choose wholesome, which is a nice, another way of saying non-harming, instead of pleasure, as, as what we're going for. So, okay. So eventually, we're, you know, we're, we're cultivating actions that lead to genuine joy and that really lead away from suffering. So here's an example from my own experience, very practical, very nitty-gritty. One time I came back from a trip somewhere and I landed at San Jose Airport and at that time, I was living uh, where I could get to my house from public transportation. So I got on the light rail. And um, just when I was arriving at the station um, with my suitcase and ready to go home, there was the train right there. And so I leaped on, just made it onto that train. And it was in the evening, so the next train wasn't coming for half an hour. That was the interval. And it happens if you've used that. Uh, light rail that you know that you can't buy a ticket on the train. You can only buy it in the station at the little machines. And then there, are, the way they check is that there are random checks that conductors come through and ask for your, for your ticket and you have to produce it or there's a big fine. And so I got on and I didn't have a ticket. And um, that was the choice I made in that moment when the train was there. And so I rode home and it happened that... Um, no conductor came, so in a sense, I got away with it. But when I got off the train, um, I stopped in the station at my destination, and I bought a ticket, <laughs> and then I threw it away. And, um, you know, it's a very tiny little thing, but I, I actually still get a little hit of joy <laughs> when I remember that. It's very small. <laughs> I can't I can't get a lot for that, but... Still, um, it expressed, it was an expression. I didn't have to do that. Nobody saw, I saw, that matters. But, um, you know, it was a little expression of 
uh, I want to be in integrity in this train ride. And I didn't really get away with it. Um, so anyway, that was, that's something to remember, you know, would you do something like that? And then what else? Oh, I think I talked about this last week in a totally different context. So I, um, had an occasion recently that I, um, I went for a hike and I, uh, ended up getting a tick and I, um, came in from, uh, and discovered it while I was in the bathroom and it was just starting to burrow into my skin. And uh, so I was, that meant that I was able to just grab it and pull it out without um, uh, needing to do a lot of complicated stuff. But they're really kind of unpleasant, right? <laughs> to have this, uh, I mean, ticks are just unpleasant. And the, when they start to burrow in, it's really kind of a uh, strange feeling. And so I had this moment with the tick um, when it was, it would have been very easy to throw it in the toilet and I hadn't killed it, pulling it out, but just throw it in the toilet, get rid of it. Cause they're kind of, you know, there's this unpleasant feeling, which comes with a sense of get it away. And so I, I had that thought. My mind is not a hundred percent pure. I did have that thought, but I immediately knew that that wouldn't be right. That would be killing a being who didn't ask for that karma. That's, that's how ticks have to live. It was just doing what ticks do. So I instead, I took it outside and I took it away from the building far enough and I just let it go on its merry way. And again, I had a little sense of, okay, you know, nobody would have really known, um, but I had a little chance to uh, express that I prefer not to kill. And there was a moment, so that was a moment for that. So, you know, uh, it's sometimes we think, what is the point of ticks, they don't do a lot of good, especially for humans, but they give us an opportunity to make merit, <laughs> to have a moment of mindfulness and a moment of expressing the precept of non-killing. So this is like free happiness. You know, you go through your day and you have myriad opportunities to either do things that are actively helpful, um, non-harming, or to refrain from doing things that come into our head and we say, no, not that one. Um, these little things actually matter. They're like little drops of water. And uh, there's a wonderful sutta that says, with dripping drops of water, even a large bucket is filled. And it's true, you know, just over time, uh, these things matter. So this is a very um, wholesome form of pleasure to actually reflect on the fact that you've done quite a number of good things today, probably. Um, it's not self-centered unless you build up a big self and say, I'm a great person because of this. But it's totally wholesome to remember your good deeds, to reflect on them. I recommend it at the end of the day to think of like three things that you did um, that were in line with your integrity. Why not? Free happiness. <laughs> you can feel a little moment of happiness and then go on, you know. Great, I remembered that. Then you go to sleep or whatever is next. Actually, even the Buddha had a time before his enlightenment when he was in a sort of a scary um, place to practice. He was alone in the woods at night. And if you've ever been in the woods in Southeast Asia where there's like tigers and other scary things. And so um, it was kind of natural that he felt some fear. This is before he was awakened. And he remembered his good deeds. He remembered that um, 
Oh, he remembered his good qualities, to be more specific. He remembered, oh, I have mindfulness, I have compassion, I have concentration. These things um, have come because I developed my mind. Why should I be afraid? And so, and then he went on. Perfectly wholesome to do that. So more formally, these are just everyday life examples that I encourage you to think of for yourself also. But let's, let's take a look also at the, um, the written teachings. There's a teaching um, that the Buddha supposedly gave to his seven-year-old son, Rahula. And uh, Rahula was a monk at that time. He had just been ordained at the age of seven. Um, and apparently, he told a lie. You know, seven-year-olds, right? So he told a lie, and the Buddha needed to somehow make this into a teaching. So he provided him with the following teaching. Now you can also just reflect, if this teaching was given to a seven-year-old, it's not intended to be highly abstract and theoretical. Um, it's Seven-year-olds really aren't into that. They need something pretty practical. So he said, um, it's a little repetitive. You'll get used to the style. An action with the body should be done after repeated reflection. An action by speech should be done after repeated reflection, and an action by mind should be done after repeated reflection. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that bodily action thus. Would this action that I wish to do with the body lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? When you reflect, if you know, oh, this action that I want to do with the body would lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both. It has painful consequences. Then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect, if I do this, this action would not lead to my own affliction, or to that of others, or to both. It is a wholesome bodily action with happy consequences. Then you may do such an action with the body. It's deceptively simple, isn't it? It's actually, I mean, this a seven-year-old can understand that. We don't need anybody to tell us that we're experiencing painful results or happy results. Does anybody need someone to tell you that? So he's saying, even to a seven-year-old, begin to look at your own experience. And of course, he doesn't mean that every single action, um, you can't, you can't reflect before you know, every movement of your hands while you're speaking, for example. But we can, um, for, we can start with big actions that come to mind. Oh, I would like to tell this person this. Well, oh, he goes on, by the way, to say an action of speech and even an action of thought to do the same reflection. Um, oh, and it multiplies further because this is when you wish to do an action, you should reflect, will it have results? The next one says... If, while you're doing the action, you realize it has painful results, then you should stop. Or if it has happy results, then you should continue. And then he goes on to say for, the, for reflecting, if after you've done an action, you reflect on it and you realize, oops, that had painful results, or you realize, oh, that had happy results, then you should determine not to do that in the future or be okay with continuing to do that in the future. So it has every combination of past, present, future, and body, speech, and mind. 
simple enough. Actually, to me, this says that ethics is actually remarkably simple, sometimes too simple for our very complicated minds. But he's saying that a seven-year-old could understand this. So, I mean, the principle is that this is an instruction to have an ongoing reflection of our behavior. It's not meant to tie us up in worrying about, is this going to be painful? Oh, no, I don't know. There's this, there's that. I'm not sure which way it'll go. He doesn't say any of that, and a seven-year-old wouldn't do that. So this is more about, you know, just having a, a conscious life and considering how it is, how it is that we're impacting things. Um, yeah. An ongoing training for ourselves in distinguishing between painful results and happy results. And it may be that sometimes we get surprised by that and we think that something, I mean, we've had that experience, right? We think we're going to say just the right thing, but it's horrible. It falls flat in some way. And so the instruction doesn't say you should think about this and, and like really go back into your childhood and figure out why it is that those conditions came together. Um, that may be appropriate in some cases, but it's, it's more simple than that. It's just like, oh, that didn't work. And then you need to take some corrective action. Actually, in the sutta, it says that if you realize something had painful results, you should go and um, admit it to somebody. So he's giving this to a child. So the implication was that he would admit it to his teacher or if you're in training. But, you know, as a lay adult in this world, we might go and admit it to the person or something else, but we need to somehow clear it in some way. The sutta wasn't really about that in detail. There's also another sutta called the, about how to discern ethics um, through mindfulness called the Kalama Sutta. Some of you have heard of it because it's, um, it's a fairly famous one. It was given to a group of adults, so not to a child. It was given to a group of adults who were not Buddhist, actually. They lived in the city of Kalama. <laughs> That's why they're called, they were called that. And it was kind of a border town, and a lot of teachers would come through this region and say, I'm telling you the truth and what all those other guys told you is wrong. And then the next guy would come and say the same thing. You need to do it this way. I'm telling you the truth. This is how it is. All those other guys were wrong. And so finally the Buddha comes through and they say to him, so we're a little confused and we have a lot of doubt because all these teachers come through and tell us all these different things and we don't know what to believe. What do you think about that? And he said, well, First he acknowledged and he said, you're right, that's the cause for confusion. So then he tried to give them some criteria, uh, which was helpful. He, um, he was basically encouraging them to see their own experience as authoritative once again. And this sounds, you can say, well, what does this have to do with this world? Well, don't we live in a place with an enormous number of spiritual teachings? Just the Bay Area alone, just Santa Cruz alone, has a huge number of teachers. You can go do yoga, and then you can go do Tibetan practice, and go to the Zen Center, you can go to Sufi dancing, you can learn Native American practices. And they don't spend a lot of time telling that all the other ones are wrong, I know that, but they all have a lot of different systems, and you might think, well, what's really right? Should I just pick and choose what feels pleasant to me? I don't encourage that. Remember, it's wholesome, not pleasant. And also, these patchwork things. Eh, 
maybe, maybe it works for some. But basically what he says to them is, when you know for yourself, these things are wholesome, meaning the recommendations that the teachers make, these things are, sorry, these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken in practice, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And when you know for yourselves these things are wholesome, these are blameless, they're praised by the wise, and if they are accepted and undertaken, they lead to welfare and happiness, then you should live in accordance with them. So when a teacher tells you something, you think about, if I actually did this, would it be for welfare and happiness, or would it be for harm and suffering? And it's not like it's black and white necessarily, but we can, you know, we can discern that. And so he then um, goes on and asks a little bit more specifically to them, well, what about things based in greed? Would those be helpful or harmful? And they say, oh, well, things based in greed would be harmful. He says, right. So then you don't do those things. And then he asks them about hatred. What about things based in hatred? Would those be for welfare or for harm? And they say, oh, for harm. He says, okay, so you, then you shouldn't do those things. And so forth, same for delusion. So he leads them through, but in the end he says, you should just check for yourself, you know. And there's a bunch of criteria. Wholesome, blameless, praised by the wise, and if accepted and undertaken, lead to welfare and happiness. Pretty good criteria. And again, you don't need somebody to tell you that. So these are the Buddha's ethical criteria. It's not thou shalt not X, it's does it lead to harm? So this is, becomes then very situational. It's not abstract, it's not theoretical, it's not hypothetical. Um, it's concrete and it's right now and it's practical. And um, it's a great way to live, circumstantial in a certain way. And so this can be challenging for the mind, which would really like there to be hard and fast rules. Just tell me what it is, and I'll write it down and keep it. <laughs> but it asks us to be present in the moment and check, is this working? Is this leading to harm? Um, if my theory says I should be able to do X, 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 just keep applying it. There may be a moment when doing X is exactly the wrong thing. And we've had this experience, many of us. Like, like let's say that there's a person, I'm thinking for myself, there was a person at work one time who was a little bit, I found, confusing and hard to deal with. Like sometimes they would respond in one way and sometimes another way. And I'm sure it made sense to them, but I couldn't figure it out necessarily. And I wanted to have a non-harming, peaceful relationship with this person. And I, I caught myself that I, what I would do is I would go, and if I had a good interaction with them, I would seal it off in my mind and say, okay, this is how I need to do it with this person. And then I would come, and that would come up in my mind. I'd come the next time, and I would say, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I would do that, and it would be like exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> like, ah, you know. And so, but... I came to see, this was great teaching for me, because I came to see over time that there were actually other conditions besides, you know, when I decided this is the right thing to say, 
I had only looked at some certain set of conditions and I hadn't maybe included enough um, other things. And so I got more sensitive to the whole, the bigger picture and then I could see, okay, uh, this might not be quite right in this case. Or I could even feel in the moment, um, mm, as I'm starting to say this, their face is starting to close. Maybe I'd better change the direction or ask them a question to figure out what's going on. So, you know, it can be like this. But this is, this is about living in a way that's peaceful in this moment, not operating by abstract principles. So again and again, we're asked to know for ourselves. We don't need an external guide to tell us that we're suffering or that we're happy. But as my previous example indicates, we might need to look again and again. We might not have seen everything the first time. So that's the kind of caveat is that our mind as it is right now might not have enough mindfulness, might not have enough clarity to always see all the conditions. Maybe only a Buddha can always see all the conditions, I'm not sure. So we have to keep looking and we have to keep digging into the parts of our mind that still have some cobwebs and we haven't really cleaned them out because our own stuff gets in the way also, right? So that's part of learning to be ethical is learning to open to our own um, our own issues so they don't entangle and cloud the mind in the moment. That's where we'll see the real issues are. Okay, so let me give another teaching then from the, uh, from the discourses, which is that the Buddha gives a natural sequence through which virtuous action or ethical conduct or non-harming or compassion will lead toward awakening. There's actually, you know, I don't know if it needs to be so formulaic, but he's, he's drawing our mind toward a, pa- uh, um, a process that happens. And I think it's pretty interesting. So this is, um, I won't read the whole thing, but it goes like this. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. This kind of makes sense. You know, if you behave in a way that's well, you have no reason to be remorseful. That's actually one of the fruits of ethical conduct is a mind that is relaxed because we know that we did our best and and that we're possessed of virtue. So there's no need for an act of will. You don't have to willfully think, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It just happens if if you're behaving well. You'll just feel that way. And then he goes on. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. Well, that makes sense. If you had no remorse, um, the mind could be relaxed and joyful and at ease in a certain way. Might be not the kind of joy that comes from, you know, watching a silly movie with popcorn and friends. That's a certain kind of joy. But there's a certain kind of joy that comes from non-remorse and it arises naturally. It's, um, 
actually a deeper form of joy than the popcorn one. Um, so then, for a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. All right, that's the translation. Rapture is a specific um, state in Buddhism that um, is a very deep form of joy that's rooted in the body and is not dependent on external conditions. So it's compared to a, at least in, when it's done in meditation, it's compared to a, a, a lake that has a, no inlets or outlets, or and there's no rain, so it's just the lake, but it's fed by an underground spring. And so there's this sense of something that bubbles up um, free from any of the external conditions. And so the, you know people like this, maybe you've been fortunate enough to meet one, people who have a certain buoyancy to themselves, regardless of whether they're having a good day or a bad day. And these are not Pollyanna, you know, ignore all the bad stuff, fakey kind of things, but people who just have that sense of, you know, it's going to be okay, this is okay, let's see what we can do about this. And this is rooted ultimately in um, being clear about their integrity at some level. And people who are not so clear about that uh, when, you know, when you move farther into the day, uh, there's a less stability. It's easy, there's remorse, and then there's easier to be upset when things go wrong, etc. Okay, so that was rapture. For a rapturous person, there's no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. So that calmness, that ability not to be agitated, bouncy, this is, doesn't mean dead. Um, serene is not dead. Serene is peaceful, responsive, um, choosing to the way that they move instead of um, being reactive and um, kind of jerky in certain ways. And we know people like that too. So then it goes on. Serenity to pleasure, to concentration, to seeing things as they actually are, to mental freedom. So this is a process. It's a series of things that, are, that unfold from each other. He kept saying it's, it is in the nature of things that these things will come, all rooted in virtue or integrity. That's the foundation. And he doesn't mean it'll happen necessarily without practice. I think there needs to be mindfulness. But um, it doesn't need to be really willful, which I think is tremendously encouraging. You know, these, these deeper states of joy and happiness and eventually concentration and wisdom unfold uh, from a foundation that we lay. We create the conditions and then somehow nurture them in the same way that we plant a seed, but we don't have to willfully grow the plant. That's going to happen anyway, without, but we can support it, of course. The plant will be different if we stick it in the shade and never water it than if we give it the right amount of sun and the little food and so forth. So we're getting a sense maybe from this teaching that there's a path to follow, that virtue is not something that you have or don't have, something that you succeed at or fail at, which are ideas we might baggage for that baggage that we might come in with, or that it's like heavy and boring. Um, 
or prudish or not relevant for this world or something. No, it's actually, it's a path. It's a process. Um, we may start out not being very good at it because we haven't looked carefully. We were not yet really attuned to that sense of, okay, let me check my action. Did it work? Did it not? What should I do? Um, but it's a skill. And as we get better at the skill, then things unfold from it, including eventually um, concentration and wisdom. It also, I'll just put in a little aside, there's a lot of people who sit down to meditate and they say, I'm going to get concentrated. That's what I want to do. I'm Stop my thoughts. I'm going to go into deep concentration. I'm going to get bliss or whatever. I'm going to get wisdom. But there's a sequence. <laughs> Did you miss the foundation in integrity and non-remorse and joy and happiness and serenity of body, um, which we don't have to achieve by will? But um, concentration isn't achieved by will either. <laughs> so the good news is we can start with something we can all do. We can all do integrity. The Buddha gave that teaching to his seven-year-old son. Seven-year-old can do it. We can do it. And other things will unfold from it. Okay. So, oh, I just gave the seed metaphor. That's great. We, um, the seed metaphor is often used, actually, in the teachings. Um, what seeds are we planting? So the seeds of our own actions will bear certain kinds of fruit. That's this, this sense of, okay, this action that I'm doing, what is coming from it? Um, the way to think about the seeds is, if you plant an apple seed, you don't get mangoes, right? The, the tree may or may not grow, the tree may or may not fruit, you know, there's all kinds of stuff before you actually get apples from an apple seed. But you can only get apples, <laughs> you can't get something else. And so in the same way, um, acts that come from greed or hatred or delusion or anger or envy, those things have bitter fruit. That's, that's what they produce. We can do things that, you know, we can put them in the shade and not water them <laughs> so they don't produce as much. But, and things like um, actions that come from generosity and love and compassion and um, mindfulness, those have to have sweet fruit. They have mangoes and apples and bananas and lovely things like that. Um, they have to. This sense of, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, the kind of cynical thing that you'll hear sometimes, is completely not true, actually. There's no way that planting an apple seed doesn't eventually produce an apple in some way, if you under, I mean, there do, there do have to be some conditions. So cultivate happily. <laughs> You'll get the fruit. It may not be immediate. You know, there are times when we say something genuinely kind and the person just, you know, slashes at us anyway. It's like, oh, I tried. Um, but don't worry, there was, not, there was not no effect from that act of kindness. Um, and this is something that we see for ourselves over time, that really it is true that um, good actions bring good results, not always in the way we want, not always in the time frame we want, but generally speaking, it's true. And of course, unwholesome actions bring pain of some form. Verse 2 stanzas of the Dhammapada, often quoted, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with an impure mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. It is in the nature of things, right? 
All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. So it doesn't say when it follows, but it does follow. And maybe I'll also add this from the from the other from the teachings. Wise people of great wisdom do not intend for their own affliction, for the affliction of others, or for the affliction of both. That was the same phrase he used with Rahula. Rather, wise people think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, and the, wel the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. So that's interesting, that our own welfare is included. They think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. That's what wise people do. So we can check our own thoughts and our own intentions. Ajahn Suchito summarized it in a similar phrase that he said we can sort of carry around as a little mantra for ourselves. And as we're doing things, we think, May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. And then go on. Don't get too caught up in that. But it's, it's a nice phrase. I actually um, put that one on a sticky note. <laughs> so I didn't get to... Um, I have to stop, we're, we're running out of time. Um, I only got to talk about non-harming for ourselves, and I said there were two dimensions, non-harming for ourselves and also non-harming in our interconnected life, so I guess I'll get to that one next time. But I hope there was some sense from this that uh, ethical conduct is maybe not what our baggage said it was, but it's really all about joy and about cultivating sweet fruit and developing the mind and living in a way that um, is increasingly lighter for us, doesn't bring uh, pain and suffering, but brings welfare and peace, and that it's a foundation from which all of our practice can, can unfold. All right, are there any questions or comments? There's a little bit guilt and shame and how this ties in mm. often is that I associate with ethical conduct is um, I should do something, but I don't. So yeah, that right. Person. That's the baggage. Yeah. So in the Buddhist understanding, um, guilt is not a useful emotion, actually, because it, um, I mean, guilt meaning something that you carry, that you, it has a self in it. You know, it, it takes on, I was a bad person for that, for doing that. Um, which isn't the case. It may have been an unwholesome action, but we separate the action from the person. Um, shame, let's use the word remorse, um, is, is wholesome, actually. It is one of those, to some degree, you know, to the degree that we fully acknowledge that we have done something and feel the suffering of that, it's helpful, it's beneficial. And then we move on. Um, we can't, we don't get stuck in there are two wonderful qualities called hiri and otapa, which uh, are basically conscience and care. That's the nice way to say it. The first one is concern um, that we 
what concern about actions that we uh, may do that are harmful. And so we have conscience about things that we've done. And then the other is um, concern, care, concern that we don't harm others. So we, we feel a little bit nervous because we, we might do harm if we're not paying attention. And they're unpleasant. They're, their feeling tone is unpleasant. Uh, sort of remorse and future concern, form of remorse and a form of anxiety in a sense, but they're not unwholesome. Um, they're just unpleasant. And so, and I don't mean in a bad way. They're just mildly, they increase the tone of our intent, of our attention, because we're trying not to bring harm. And so those are considered useful. And the, the usual formula is that if you realize you've done something wrong, you um, fully acknowledge to yourself that it was done. You find a way to repent repair it in some way. If you can literally undo it in some way, that's great. If you can't, then you take some kind of corrective action at least, um, maybe an apology or maybe giving the person a gift, something like that. So there's the internal recognition, the external action that changes the karma, changes the direction of the karma. You can't change the past karma. And then the third piece is a, um, a commitment to not do that in the future. If you do those three pieces, then it's done and you start fresh. So carrying anything beyond that is considered unskillful because it weighs on your mind and it creates itself. Does that help a little bit? I know that's not easy to do. The mind is going to go back and back and back and say, oh, I shouldn't have done. Um, but that's, then we just see that. As soon as we're seeing that with mindfulness, um, we're not caught up in it. So at least we can be mindful of okay, repetitive pattern of guilt going on in my mind. But we understand that it's not something we want to dwell in. Yeah. This is a very different view of ethics than some of us may have encountered earlier. And so I encourage you to reflect on it and try it out. You know, what if we live this way for a week? You know, just try out what Kim said this evening for a week and see how it works for you. Um, I'm not telling you that this is what is correct and all those other people are wrong. I'm encouraging you to check it in your own experience. See how it works. See how you can live without harming yourself through your actions. Trevor, did you have a comment? I thought I saw your hand up. Yeah, I, I just got back from the bike for the book uh, Saturday. Oh. Away the precepts, kind of were afraid of them in a sense, um, until I started learning a little bit more about them. Um, just for so long, about meditation, meditation, meditation. It's like, when is the next time I can get meditation to do some you know, calm state? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that you brought all of this up, um, but I was curious to know if you had any sources. Yeah, there are um, there are some beautiful 
Um, hmm. I was going to try to point you toward a book, but the name is not coming to me. Uh, the suttas themselves, I can give you the references for those. I know you sometimes read suttas. Um, and I'll also comment that, interestingly, um, ethics is not discussed a lot in our tradition, perhaps because, uh, for a number of reasons. But um, So there aren't so many um, popular Dharma books that talk about it. Maybe they don't sell as well, I'm not sure. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity to advertise a program that's just starting up at the Insight Meditation Center. It's going to start in September. It's a monthly program for eight months. And the title of it is The Equivalence of Ethics and Enlightenment. So if you think that's an interesting sounding title, I encourage you to look on their website. I'm actually going to take the course um, because I know, because um, to me the, the title is self-evident, um, not that I'm enlightened, but the, the, it's so clear from enough practice that it's completely true. And I would love to get a lot of sutta references for it, which I know Gil Fromstahl will do. He's the teacher up there. So maybe as I'm going through this program over the next year, I'll have more and more to offer in terms of clear references. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of practical reflections also from that course. So I, that's the best I can do at this moment, Trevor. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.